Hey everyone, welcome to the show. You're listening to Can I, the Latchel podcast named for the acronym Continuous and Never Ending Improvement. At Latchel, we have a deep belief that you can't get better by staying the same. And our podcast is here to give you the tools and resources you need to achieve healthy growth. As a Y Combinator backed company, we know what it takes to have rapid, accelerated growth, and we want to pass our learnings along to you. At Latchel, we help property managers and landlords grow and scale by taking over 24 7 maintenance operations. We've developed an innovative mix of software and on demand support to help do that. Each week on this show, we bring on industry experts and we dive into the topics that'll help you shape your business. Welcome to the show. Let's get going. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this session. I'm Ethan Lieber, the CEO of Latchel, here with our VP of Growth, Josh Hirsch, and today's guest, Steve Rosenberg from Empire Industries. Uh, They're a property management company and real estate company based in Houston, Texas. Uh, Steve's also the host of the podcast, The Landlord Survival Show, and he recently published the book, Building an Empire, Failing Our Way to Millions, which you can find on Amazon. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you having me. So Empire Industries has a goal of making property investments truly passive for their clients. And I want to deep dive into how that's done. But first, I'd love if you could give us a brief intro on Empire Industries and kind of an idea of where your company is currently at, Steve. Yeah, sure. So uh, the company was created by myself and my business partner, Pete Newbig. And, um, you know, it it was one of those scenarios where it was born out of necessity. Uh, Pete and I had some properties um, that we needed managed. And unfortunately, they were not very good properties. They were low income properties that we owned. Uh, And we had quite a few of them. And it was during the recession days and nobody wanted them. Nobody wanted to manage them. Nobody wanted to buy them. Nobody wanted to do anything with them. So Pete and I were basically stuck with the only option of keeping them and figuring a way to systematize our business so that it was not basically running us into the ground. And so we started doing that and we started running our properties a little bit more structured. Um, and, uh, you know, long story short, we, we systematized our business uh, back in 2011, going into 2012. Um, and what happened was, is Pete and I are investors. We owned properties. We owned apartment complexes. We knew what to do. We just were not doing it correctly because we are too emotionally attached to the situation. If, you know, it's, it's one of those do as I say, not as I do. We could give the best yeah. advice in the world. But when it came to us, we were the worst at taking advice. And um, so we ended up basically fixing our problems. And what happened was, is we had other investors kind of in the industry Um, in the Houston area approach us and said, Hey, you know, what would you guys do? Told them what we did and said, basically we're running it like a business. You know, we put in some structure, we put in some policies some procedures and you know, it's stabilized. Um, And these were properties that you owned and managed. Yeah, we, we had, we had 30 something properties um, that that we owned and they were mixtures of regular to low income. Um, Mm -hmm. but, But to be honest, the low income properties were just eating, eating us up. They were, they were, you know, the, the term low income, high cash flow for us, the low income part was true. The high cash flow was not. <laughs> and so we just we had a huge turnover. Um, you know, we had like the average tenancy was about eight months. 
uh, our make ready costs were three times the amount, uh, mostly because when the tenants left, they would take parting gifts with them, like wiring and electrical and stoves yeah. and toilets and stuff. So uh, every time the tenant left, we'd have all the cash flow we did make would go into basically rebuilding the house essentially. Um, and it, it was it was anything but passive. And in, in my background, um, I'm an airline pilot, so I was flying for the airlines. Um, Pete was working full time um, as an IT uh, department head. So we didn't really want the job that we now had. We just wanted passive income. And that was exactly what it wasn't. It was the complete opposite. Mm -hmm. And so the rental properties, when we started putting some structure in place, it's kind of stabilized itself. They never actually made us money, but they stopped bleeding us to death, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so what happened was, is uh, we had other investors approach us and ask us if we could manage their houses the way we were managing ours. And our first immediate response was, no way. We do not want your problems. We barely fixed ours. No. Yeah. Um, but then we kind of thought about it and we realized, well, maybe through economies of scale, you know, we can keep buying properties and we can manage others and make some money. And, you know, when when a, there's a maintenance issue, it's not coming out of our pocket. It's, it's their problem. It's not ours, essentially. But we can still volumize our, our model. Uh, and so what happened was, is we started doing that. We started managing properties. And then basically people just started handing us properties. I think two reasons. Number one, we were investors. We were looking at it as investors. So we were kind of coming at it from another angle. Um, and we were able to talk to people as investors. We didn't really think of us as property managers. We were just mm. kind of helping them out with their properties. The other part was because we were had so many bad properties in the ghetto, that's what we attracted. So we had other people in the ghetto giving us their problems saying, here, you take it now. We don't want it, mm. uh, which we, we soon learned that those are just not manageable. And so we ended up getting rid of our properties as well as all the clients that had those. Um, and so if you fast forward today, we manage about a thousand properties um, in Houston, Dallas and Fort Worth. Um, we uh, have a full brokerage realty. And uh, we basically are, you know, continuing to grow, continuing to march, just doing a lot of stuff, uh, innovative. And, uh, you know, Pete, my business partner, he's the RVP for NARPM. He, he's uh, real involved with, with the whole organization. Yeah. Um, I do a lot of speaking. As you said, I got a podcast show. Actually, I have, a, I have two. I have another one um, that, that I do. And, and I just do a lot of speaking on property management and investing as well. I'm kind of curious. In those early days, when you started getting your first clients and acting as that, that third party, like property manager. I'm curious, uh, how did they find out about you? Was this like word of mouth, like through your network? Were you just asking friends, like, do you want me to manage your property? Like, how did that happen? Well, it's funny, funny you ask that because I, I'm the proverbial salesperson, right? Anyone I see, it, it's, it's a deal, right? We're working a deal. Pete is the complete opposite. So we kind of started managing properties without Pete even knowing it. So next thing you know, Pete's like, why do we have 80 properties in our software? And I'm like, oh, we're kind of helping some other people out with some of their properties. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that's kind of how it started. You know, he's like, what do you mean we're helping people out? I'm like, well, we're kind of managing them. And he's like, what are you talking about? I said, well, some people have asked us to help them out with their properties. So that's, that was kind of the initial, hey, we should get into management conversation. Um, but, but originally it was just people that, that I knew in the industry that were coming up to us local. This is, you know, 2010. So there wasn't really the Facebook kind of stuff wasn't really going on or I don't mm. think. Um, and so we just had people kind of approaching us locally, really. 
Gotcha. And like, I'm curious how fast that growth happened. Cause it sounds like it just like magically you went from like the 30 you owned to 80 in your software. What was that? Can you talk about how long it took to kind of build up maybe to getting 100 properties? That was, and then that was probably about eight months um, mm. uh, of us doing that. Uh, and, and remember at first when we started, we were charging like $50 to manage people's properties. Like we thought it'd be more of like a co-op, like, Hey, we'll just help you. You help us. We're all investors. Mm. So it was really, it wasn't like we, we didn't have this tiered management. We, you know, we, we were just kind of thinking like, Hey, we're investors, you're investors. Let's just kind of do this together um, and kind of roll with it. And so that was kind of the approach that, that I kind of took. I'm like, well, yeah, if, if we all need our properties leased or we all need maintenance, it's a lot easier for me to go to a maintenance guy and say, Hey, I've got 80 properties. We need a better price. And so that was kind of the, 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 the thought process for me. Um, and so what really took off from there was we ended up hiring a business coach and that was probably the smartest thing we ever did because I don't think we'd be in business today if we did not have a coach. And, uh, that was in June of 2012 and December, of 2012 is when we hired our first employee and Pete quit his job full time. And that's kind of where we say we really started the business. Cause until then we were kind of, you know, kind of doing it kind of not. And, um, we hired a, a property manager that was, there was a property. She was already experienced. And the first thing she did was basically fire all the properties that I brought on. She said, these guys, they're either going to get you sued or put you out of business. And we have to get rid of them because they're bad owners. They're bad properties. They're not taking care of them there's a lawsuit somewhere in here. So basically all the work that we did was gone. So we were like the biggest client again. And she's like, you'd be fired too, if you guys weren't the owners. And we were like, okay. So, uh, but you know, we, we learned, um, we learned a lot more about structure and more importantly with the business coach, we learned a lot about how to run a business, not, mm-hmm. not just a property management business, but we learned how businesses run, how they function. And that was really, really important. Um, as we ended up growing our company and we learned about sales, marketing, operations, KPIs, metrics. And, and I think that's really the reason that we've been able to grow and scale to, to the size that we have in such a short time. Well, and it sounds like you have, you know, I mean, two two really big things in play. First is running it like a business because, you know, just as a broker, you know that there are a lot of people that run their brokerages, but not as a business. Sure. Right, and they're kind of winging it, and like just either bringing on agents, bringing on properties, like whatever happens. Um, but I think the really interesting part is that you are a pilot, um, and so all the systems and the importance of systems and checklists and the rest of that has to be really important. So how does that play in? Yeah, it, it's funny you say that because you know when when um, you know the whole reason I started doing this, my whole story in my book that anyone can get and read. Um, as I, I talk about 9-11 and, and the way 9-11 affected me was that, you know, I, September 10th of 2001, I had the best job in the world. I was 29 years old. I was flying for a major airline, um, flying a 737. I, I had the job of a lifetime. September 13th, I was given a furlough notice saying, yeah, we don't really need you anymore because we don't know if we're going to exist and we need to protect the shareholders. So we're going to go ahead and furlough you. So you go from a safe, secure job, or at least the illusion of a safe, secure job to all of a sudden possibly being on the street. And that's what actually got me into uh, real estate. But, you know, I've been 
trained by Boeing for the last 25 years on how to operate an aircraft and run checklists and systems and, you know, multiple people. And so when Pete and I started looking at some of the challenges that were going on in our company, because, you know, when one thing that we've learned and we learned this from our business coach is that, you know, when you're growing at the speed that we are growing at, basically 50% of our systems and 50% of our people will break. And that's basically what we were told. He said, you're going to, you're going to piss off a lot of people. You're going to break a lot of eggs. You just got to keep going through it. And you got to, it's kind of like building an airplane in the air while you're flying it. You just have to keep working on it and it's going to work itself out, but it, that's part of business. And so you have to be okay with it not being perfect. But in the, in the aviation world, you know, the things that are checked are the things that will kill you. So for example, you know, putting on your seatbelt is not something that needs to be in a checklist item. Putting the landing gear down when you're landing, that's got to be in the checklist item. So, you know, again, when, when, when Pete and I were starting to figure out what should we put in checklists for our company, um, what we looked at, when I gave it to Pete, I'll give you an example. Um, I'm going to say maybe it was a move-in process that we had. And Pete's an IT guy, engineer mindset, very, very documented and procedural. And so his checklist was about 19 pages of things that had to be done. And the way that I equate it to is I said, you know, in the aviation world, when you take off and you lose an engine on rotation, that is the most critical time ever of, of your life as a pilot. It's called a V1, a V1 engine failure right at rotation. That checklist to take off, secure the plane, secure the engine, come back and land is three pages. So I told Pete, yours is 19. An engine pitching fire is three. I said, we need to get this to one page. I said, it, it's just the things that will kill us. That's what we need to make sure are done. Them logging into a software system, them sitting at their desk, putting in their password, we don't need to tell them that. Them not paying an owner, that we need to tell them. So that's how the checklist, you take an engineer mindset that wants everything checked and you take me, and that's kind of how, you know, in our, in our company is run completely off of checklists. There's this um, book we talk about all the time, and it's actually how we built a lot of our own processes called The Checklist Manifesto. Yeah, it's a great book. It's, just, it's the best way to systematize something, especially in like a simple way that new employees especially can just take it and get yeah, it. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we in, in that book, he actually went to Boeing. And, and if you remember, he actually talked to Boeing because Boeing, you know, airlines, air, the airline industry you know, I could like, for example, for me, so I fly the Boeing 787, right? So I could get in a Boeing 787 with, you know, we have 12,000 pilots at the airline that I work for, that I still work for. I could get in a cockpit with any one of those guys and we would both know exactly what to do, when to do it. And we would work in sync without even knowing each other, without even talking about what we're doing. We would be doing our things because of our checklist um, adherence and the mindset behind it. And so it's, it's very interesting to learn the mindset and methodology behind checklists because in theory, anybody should be able to come into your company or my company without knowing anything about it, sit down at a desk and be able to say, okay, let me pull out the checklist and let me see what I could do. And they should be able to do their job just like, I mean, obviously they probably can't fly a plane, but they could flip the switches and do what they have to do. And if they don't know, then they go to an expanded version of the checklist that actually shows in detail what you're doing and why you're doing it. And that's kind of how we created our company as well. And, you know, we, we're very big into virtual assistants. We've got a whole staff mm -hmm. of that down in Mexico. 
Um, but we run our company on checklists and anyone anywhere in the world can run our checklist and be able to operate. And that's that's really the key. How, how do you get them to, um, sorry, continue to stay on this, but how do, you, how do you get your team to follow the checklists the way that they should? I mean, I, we've, we've both run other companies as well and getting all of those people to actually implement, follow the process and do it every time, I mean, is definitely a big issue. You know, the, the, that's a great question. The, one of the challenges with checklist adherence is a lot of people think that, well, I told them how to do it, they should be doing it. And what happens is, is when, and, and this is same in the aviation industry, like we're constantly trained and retrained on checklists and using and manipulating the checklist because it's not natural. And so what happens normally in a checklist is they sit there and go, done, 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 done. And then they go, check, 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 check. Yep, got it all. And then they move on. Checklists are see it, do it, check it. See it, do it, check it. See it. All of a sudden, if they can't do it, you stop. You don't do it anymore. And that's something that has to be trained. It's not something that's natural for us to do because we do it all by rote. And, and a perfect example is there, there have been planes that they guys have landed the plane without putting the landing gear down. They read it on the checklist. They both looked at the landing gear and they never put it down. And they just, they, they thought that they did it. The landing gear warning horn was going off. They were coming in and they just belly skidded it right in and landed because they did it in their minds and they never actually did it and checked it. So it's, it's not going back to your question. It's not a, Hey, you guys should all use checklists. Talk to you tomorrow. It's a daily thing that has to be constantly ground into you. Like now, you know, when, when I get in a cockpit of an airplane, if the other guy just started flipping switches and doing something, you would look at him like, what are you doing? Like, you can't do that. You know I mean? We can't even reset a circuit breaker on an airplane unless we pull out a checklist that like we can't even we can't even flip a switch i mean that's how strict they are but the crash rate and the death rate in aviation is next to none and that's why because they're and and they're constantly retraining us on that all the time so my, my point is is if you wanted to make it um part of the culture and of your companies i would suggest you constantly have to do that training over and over and over again to make sure and it's kind of I would put it back on you as the as the leader to say if you're not enforcing it, it may be a you problem, not a them problem. Absolutely. I, I'm kind of curious when you brought on your first property manager in 2012. Did you already have all your checklists kind of ironed out for them? We had no idea what we were doing. I mean, we literally we 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 had no idea. I mean, we didn't. Gotcha. The, the checklist came. You know, it, you, it's what's interesting is what we've learned is. Everything's a cycle, right? It, it, it's cyclical. And we learned that at about 250 to maybe 300 properties, you go from a small mom and pop to a, to a larger scale and you're going to start expanding. And that's where your first set of breakage happens. All mm-hmm. of a sudden, the systems, the one man doing this, the one person, all of a sudden that doesn't work. And so when we were at about 250 to 300 properties, a lot of our stuff started breaking. And so we're looking at this going, man, what? it was like chaos. I mean, I, I would go in the office and it was like a pressure cooker. Like, you know, when you walk into a room and you're like, I think I'm going to leave because someone's going to get stabbed or something. And I mean, that's how I felt, you know? And so what, what we actually did is, is we, we talked to our business coach and we said, you know, we, we're not giving good customer service. We want to give better customer service. How do you do that? 
And he says, well, you need, you should talk to this guy. We talk to this guy. He can help you. He does customer service. So we said, okay. So we called this guy up. He comes down to our office and he says, okay, well, tell me what's going on. And we said, well, you know, we're, we're, we're upsetting owners. We're losing owners. They're just not happy. And we want to get better customer service. So can you help us? And he says, okay. And it was, it was me, Pete, and one of the property managers sitting in the room. And he says, okay, well, tell me how you do this procedure. And, and I forget what it was. It was something simple. And he says, you tell me how you do it. So I kind of rattled off how, how I thought we did it. And then he says, okay, now you tell me how you do it. Pete rattled off something else. And he said to the other person, you tell me. All of us had a different way that we did it. He goes, that's your problem right there. He goes, you're not delivering consistent service. And if you, until you can clearly define the flow and the role of everyone in this company and what they do, you're never going to get a good customer service. So like our business coach, we hired this guy on the spot. Uh, and uh, um, his name is Errol Allen. He's still around and he's, he's helping a bunch of property management companies now, um, probably because he cut his teeth on us so badly. Uh, but basically for the next two years, he was in our office like three days a week. And he, we would take a system of, 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 of something and say, okay, how, you know, how a service ticket comes in, what happens? And we would go through hours of flow charting this out. And the first thing he would say is, okay, it, tell me how you do it. So we would tell him how we did it. He would take that and then he would bring in the rest of the team. And he would say, is this how you guys do it? And they said, no, we don't. He said, okay, well, you guys tell me how you do it. So then he would have two comparisons. And he would say, you see the problem? And so some of the people would be like, we don't do that. Never knew that was my job. We do that up here. Why are we doing it down there? And you're sitting there like going, we talked about this many, many times. Like, how do you know? They're like, don't know anything about that. So we realized that it was, you know, because you're growing and because you're kind of flying around, everyone's trying to just get stuff done and no one's communicating with each other when changes happen. And again, what worked at 100 doors doesn't work at 200, doesn't work at 500, but, you know, and it goes on. So what we learned was we've got to document it. So then he basically went and said, okay, to the team, not with us, he says, how would you guys want it done? How would it work effectively for you? And so then he, so they told him, he floated out. And again, this is hours and hours and, and days. And, and I mean, yeah. like about two years he was with us. And basically the whole company, we ended up creating flow charts and systems. So we had a flow chart. Then for each box, we had a description of what we did, detailed, what job role, not the person, but what job role did that job and what disk profile is associated with that role. And then basically, then we turned it into a checklist. We ran the checklist and then we turned it into an electronic checklist. Mm -hmm. So it's a very long drawn out process, but you know, again, these are the things that you've got to do to, to succeed if you're going to be growing. So you, you talked about as you scale and as you grow, especially for a rapidly growing company, you see things breaking, you know, 100 to 250 units, then probably 250 to 500, and then you're going to have more breakages. And you talked earlier about you just keep going, you keep pushing through it. And I'm curious for a lot of our customers are at these breaking points. Yeah. Um, they're at 200 units, 250 units, trying to get to 500. They're at 100 units, trying to get to 300. What would you say to them when they're thinking, well, how do I balance continuing to grow with fixing what feels like an out of control operation? Well, a couple things. And, you know, one of the rare 
opportunities that, that I have is that Pete and I, my business partner, we're, we're complete opposites. So I'm, I am the true visionary. <clears throat> He's the true integrator. And, and we, we really try to make sure we don't step on each other's toes. Now, the, the, the nice thing about that is, is he's focused on one side of the company. I'm focused on the other. The, one of the challenges in business, what I've learned, is that you always get, normally, it's the integrator, the operator that starts the company. And so the operator, their, their personality profile, they want everything perfect. And if it's out of touch or it's not working correctly, it's, it's off the charts bad. That's how we see it. And the way the way that Pete sees it as well, and they, meaning they, Pete operations, they're always getting the bad news, right? And, and remember, nobody ever calls a property management company to tell you you're doing a good job, right? They're either calling you to complain or fire you. That's basically the only two reasons someone's calling you, right? And it's kind of like the complaint desk at the airport. No one's standing in that mile-long line in bad weather to say the airline's, you know, doing great. So you got to remember, number one, is you can't take it personally. It is never going to be as perfect as you want it to be. And you've got to understand that it's constantly, you're constantly molding that clay. And you can't let yourself get so far in the weeds when you're an owner that you're not leading the team. Because what happens is, is you know, you get the people you deserve. And what I mean by that is if you are not being the leader and you're so focused on being the operator. And I get that sometimes if it's a smaller company, you have to change your hats. But when you change that hat to being the leader, they're going to follow you. And that's who they're trying to follow. And, and, you know, you're inspiring them. And if you are not being the inspirer and you're not leading your team, they're going to leave. Because people don't work for a paycheck. They work to be inspired because they feel like they're making a difference. And so where I'm going with this is that if you – the owner of a smaller company are trying to grow and all you're seeing is problems, problems and headaches that is conveyed to everyone around you. And the good people are going to leave and the bad people are going to stay. And you just have to realize that you have to be okay with breaking eggs, with upsetting clients. It's just, that is part of the business. It's not a reflection of you. It's a reflection of what you're trying to do. And you have to, it's, it's a fine line to separate, but it's, it's so, so important because you know, when we got to 800 doors, we had another massive break. We had staff breaking. We had systems breaking. We had upset owners. And you know what? The only way you can break through is that, you know, Pete and I had to step in as leaders and say, okay, you know what? Let's step back. Let's look at this from the 10,000 foot view. And let's, let's see the choke points. Because as a business owner and a leader, your job is to see those choke points, hopefully before they come. And you can assess them beforehand. And if you do not see them coming and you get hit in the face with it, it's because you're being the operator and you're not being the leader. So sometimes it just takes more leadership. And, and honestly, you know, I, I, I work with companies and I help them. And one of the things I tell them is, you know, you, Mr. Owner, could be the problem. You could be the reason because, you know, a lot of these people that are operators and they're smaller owners they want it to be done by them and they want it perfect. So what do they do? They don't leverage it out. They want to do it themselves. So they kind of put on their cape and they put on their hero hat and they go, get out of my way. I can, no one can do it as good as me. I'm just going to have to do it. I'm going to have to walk properties. You know, and the reality is, is you're not going to be able to do all of those things and scale. And the only way to scale is by leverage and using other people because look, I could, you know, I own the company, but I don't do the accounting. 
I don't do the leasing. We have people that do that. And that's the true model of scaling because, you know, if you can't walk away from your business, you don't have a business, you have a job. And if it can't keep operating, you're doing something wrong. There's something wrong fundamentally with the leader. It's not the business. It's the model that the leaders created. And I, I think you're totally spot on. I mean, I know that Ethan and I both agree with the leverage piece and the rest of that. I mean, that's part of the model of Lashville in the first place. Yeah. Um, but so for you, how do you make decisions of when the right time is to find one of these people? I mean, we have conversations all the time with people that are like, well, I want to get these 12 things in place before I make this step or that step. And, you know, how, how do you make that decision for you and the company? Yeah, well, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the decisions are made. We have a leadership team. Um, and, and, you know, we, we've gotten to the size where we, you know, we've gotten people in the team that are leaders. Um, and so, you know, well, let me back up. The first thing we do is we run our company off of KPIs and metrics. So our company is very, very standardized. It's not emotions. It's the data. The data will always tell you the story. And if you're not looking at that data and you're not able to see what it's telling you, it's telling you a story. You may not be listening to the story or you may be ignoring the story but it's telling you a story. And so that will tell you whether or not it's time to remove someone, add someone, change something, because the data and the numbers are what's actually telling you the story. A lot of times we choose not to look at it um, out of fear and, and we kind of push it aside. I mean, you know, look, we, we all know that we've had employees, I'm sure like you and us, we've had staff members that you're kind of like, oh man, I just, I hope, I hope they change. I hope they turn around. I hope, I hope. And then it doesn't work. And you're like, man, I knew it. Like I should have, I should have a long time ago. It's because of fear, right? We don't do it because of fear. And a lot of, a lot of owners, they're causing their own problems out of their own fear. And they're not running it proactively. They're running it reactively. You know, somebody calls, somebody this, somebody that, and they're just constantly day after day bouncing around. And, you know, the, the old adage, the fish stinks from the head down. If the owner's doing that, how do you think the staff's doing? The staff's going to be just as erratic as the owner. Somebody has to be in charge and say, okay, you know what? We're not on fire. We're not going to crash. Let's just stabilize the situation. And then let's work the problem and come up with a solution. And that's really what the, the leader, the owner's job is. And if they can't do that, they could be the wrong person in that seat. What are the metrics or KPIs that are most important to your business? Well, every, every department has their own metrics. Um, so, I mean, it, we, you know, we, again, a lot of our stuff is done with virtual assistants um, mm -hmm. and, and other stuff. So they all have their KPIs, meaning, you know, maintenance. It could be how many tickets open over seven days, how many tickets are denied, um, how many tickets are the vendors had to go back on, you know? So again, what we do is each each department, normally you want to have about three to five metrics per department. But what happens is, is when you have a problem, all of a sudden, those are the metrics you dial in on and maybe mm. you expand those. So it's like, okay, let, let's just say you went from, let's just use maintenance like for you guys. Let's say we said, okay, we want to have 10% maintenance tickets um, more than seven days old. All of a sudden that spikes to 50%. We go, okay, there's a problem. Then we go, okay, let's drill down deeper. Well, it's just one contractor that's causing that problem. Mm. You have to have a conversation with that contractor. If we didn't have those metrics, we wouldn't know. We'd be like, man, why do we have so many open tickets? What's the deal? You know, or again, if, if a tenant is calling about a problem and all of a sudden our after hour calls are spiking through the roof, 
okay, is it a vendor? Is it a house? Is it a tenant? Is it an area? Is it the climate? You know what I mean? And so we, whenever we see a, a problem and what we do is we've learned that our metrics are red or green. And so we make them conditional, meaning we've set parameters of how we would want what we expect our metrics to be. If they hit those parameters, they're green. As, as an owner of the company, if it's green, I don't care about it. It's already hit the number. Don't care. If it's red, there's a problem. If it's red two weeks in a row, that's something we need to look at. Do we either have the wrong parameter or do we really have a problem that we need to dig deeper? So that's how we do it. And so we have weekly leadership meetings. Um, and look, a leadership could be two people. It doesn't matter. I mean, it's just two people objectively stepping out of the company, looking at the numbers and the metrics for the whole company and going, okay, what is this telling us? Do we have a problem or do we have the wrong metric? And that's what, you know, that's what you should be doing with the metrics. One of the things that impresses me about what you're talking about and the way you've built Empire Industries is it sounds like even when these metrics are in the red and you say, okay, we got to fix those, that doesn't stop you from continuing to grow. And I think a lot of people, um, especially when they're in these transition phases of their business, they let those red metrics stop them from growing. And they say, wait, we have to fix this first, then we can get back to growth. I'm curious, like, was there like something someone said to you or have you always had that mindset? Like, where did that sort of like courage and ambition come from? Well, and I will tell you, my business partner, Pete, he is opposite of me, like I said. So as far as I'm concerned, it's it's grow, grow, grow. And we joke and we say, if, if it was up to me, we'd have 5,000 doors and it would be chaos. If it was up to him, we'd have five doors, they'd run perfectly no one would talk to him and it would be fine. So we meet in the middle, right? And, and But, you know, we learned early on that marketing and sales, you're either growing or you're dying. You never stay the same. So the misconception is people think, I'm just going to stay the same. You're not staying the same. You're dying. It's like a tree. Tree doesn't stay the same. You're the, you're the growing or shrinking. So that's the first misunderstanding. The other misunderstanding is people look at marketing as an expense. And marketing is an investment. It's not an expense. And what people need to understand when it comes to marketing is, you know, that momentum wheel to get turning, it takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of money to get that thing spinning. Once it's spinning, it's a lot easier to keep it spinning. You can't just start and stop it. Now, if you were to talk to my business partner, Pete, he'll go like, hey, maybe we should cut, maybe we should stop marketing for a while. And I'm like, you don't just stop marketing. Like, it doesn't work that way. You know, it's like, you know, so so he does have that mindset sometimes. He's like, man, we've got some problems. Maybe we should slow it down. I'm like, we're not slowing down. You need to fix your side because we're keep going. And, and you know, again, that, that's just – that is the that is the plus with he and I because, again, if it was just me, operations wouldn't be able to fix it. If it was just him, there would be no doors coming in. And so what people don't understand is marketing is different than sales. Marketing – there's a certain disc profile and a certain person that does marketing. And there's a completely different person that does sales. I tell people marketing makes the phone ring. Sales answers the phone proverbially, right? So there's different people and, and it, there's a whole chain reaction that goes along with that. And, and you know, there, there's, we can go into a whole marketing conversation cause that's kind of my deal. Um, but, but it's, it's what I've learned with marketing is it's persistence over perfection. It's constant, constant 
being out there and doing content that people want and need, not just talking about me because I think they, I want to talk about me, you know? Um, so that, that's the difference between educational marketing and, and the other kinds that are out there. But yeah, you, you definitely cannot start and stop it. And again, most people that start a property management company are operators. They're not sales and marketing people. Right. So they don't look at, they look at marketing as an expense. Marketing is a necessity because if you, as soon as you turn that open light to close, you're going out of business. You just haven't realized it yet. There's um, when Lacha was going through Y Combinator at uh, the beginning of this year, um, they do these, these like group meetings basically with the partners and they'll go through and you set goals for like two weeks. And this was the first day there. Will and I were sitting, and Julian were sitting there going over our goals. And I don't even remember what we said. And it was, you know, like whatever, seven new customers or something this week. I, I don't even remember at, the, at this point. But I remember what one of our partners said. His name's Aaron Harris. He looked me right in the face and was like, if you're not growing four times what you just said, your company won't succeed. And that mark at that time was like, how are we going to do that? Yeah. That is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it, you know, they say if your goals don't scare you, they're not big enough. True. And so, going yeah. off that, I'm curious, like, how do you set your growth goals? What are the, if you could share, I'd love to yeah, know what that you know, is. Our, our goals, uh, you know, like I, I, we do a lot of stuff, you know, obviously in Texas and stuff. And then I, I do a lot of, I do a lot of speaking. Um, so I do some stuff like uh, around the U S um, to investor groups, as well as property management, both um, as well as in Australia. So we, we do a lot of stuff. So we're, we're talking to people about other stuff. Like we've had conversations with people about setting up operations in Malaysia because they mm -hmm. want to talk about our operations. So, I mean, that's stuff that you go, Malaysia, like what, what do you, you know, and so it's just stuff that all of a sudden you look at and you go, well, you could, I mean, why couldn't you? Right. I mean, you set up operations just like you do in another city. Um, but so we, we have a lot of stuff, some stuff I can talk about, some I can't, but, but we have a lot of growth that, things in mind. Um, but what we're doing right now is we're really just really grinding it out. And we're, we are, we are in the process of retooling our systems and we're trying to automate as much as possible. We're trying to systematize or trying to automate as many things as we can, because anytime there's a human interaction with something, meaning like an elbow, when it goes from one department to the other, that's the chance for something to be missed. And so you can't grow and scale when things are getting missed right? Because the churn will kill you. So we're, we're really trying to retool a lot of the stuff before we go on our next route of, of, you know, growth. There's a lot of companies that are, that talk about automation when they're at, you know, 50, 100 units. Do you think that's too early? Should they just be focused on increasing that portfolio until they're at, you know, a thousand? Man, I, I think, I think it's not an or it's an and. I, I think sales and marketing needs to be first and foremost on every company's list. Because here's the thing, it's called market share for a reason. It's not market creation, right? You're sharing the market with someone else. So, you know, if I'm in a area, I'm sharing it with my competitors. My goal is to put them out of business and take their share. That's my goal, right? And that's what I want to do. And so the only way you can do that is by somehow being better than them at marketing and sales. And so you have to, that doesn't happen by chance. That takes someone that's dedicated 
you've got to be focused on growth. I mean, you, you have to be a growth minded person. And, you know, I know there's a lot of the gurus out there that talk about this and that, you know, in my opinion, it's just a matter of grinding it out and being that guy who's out there consistently. I mean, I have like 300 video blogs on my website. You know, I mean, I just, I, I was told, be a content creator, create content, be on Facebook, do this. That's all I was told to do. I said, okay. I said, what, what do I make? They said, just figure it out as you go. I said, okay. They said, you got to write a book. I wrote a book. You know I mean? I just do what I'm told. I'm sure it could be better. I'm sure it's not the best, but you know, I'm sure my presentations could be better, but it's a matter of being consistently out there. And I think that's what people are missing. You know, they're, they're thinking when I do this, then I'll do that. The problem is, is it never works that way. It's gotta be a, a consistent basis on both of them. And like I said, that's why we're very fortunate that Pete and I, the way we operate, you know, he basically stays out of my lane and I stay out of his lane and, and it works very well that way. The, the interesting thing that you said though, I mean, <clears throat> the way that you talk about a lot of this stuff is that you got advice from somebody that was trustworthy. So they had, you know, jurisdiction with you, yeah. um, but then you implement, right? Yeah. And, and being, being a growth guy for years, that's exactly what I look, look at. Um, so you just implement, implement, and getting getting your people to implement the rest of that. So I guess my question to you is when you're looking at how you're doing all of this, there there is only one Steve, right? So if you have that sales facing, that growth facing side, how does how does that work now at your level? Yeah, so that's a good question. And you know what you know, one of the things going back to the action, again, we are not afraid to take action and we're not afraid to fail. And we're not afraid to say, you know what, that didn't work. Let's retreat and come out, out of that hole and go another hole. So we're, we're humble enough to, we don't have egos in the sense that we know that we're going to try a bunch of things and they're not going to work. And we're okay with that. And we're okay with going, you know what? We tried it. It didn't work. Retreat, go somewhere else. Don't keep trying it because I'm emotionally attached to this idea. You know, um, Pete always says, I, I, I may have 10 ideas a week. Nine of them suck, but one of them is the moneymaker. <laughs> His job is to figure out which one that one is. Um, but you know, one of the things that we've learned about the marketing and the sales is we, I, I, we've made a conscious effort. You know, I have a marketing team, I have a sales team. So I've been slowly pulling myself out of not being the Steve show to being the empire show. So I have more people doing the education. I have more people doing video blogs so that it's, it's, it's more of the brand and not me. Cause it's important to make it, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, they're going to go, where's Steve? What happened to Steve? And, and you, we don't want that. We want the brand to stand on its own. So again, you have to let your ego aside to say, hey, you know what? Okay, I need to step out of this and be more back-end operational, higher level strategic of, hey, all right, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to set up, you know, conversations with these people. I'm going to go speak at this conference. I'm going to, you guys do that stuff. I'm going to go do other stuff that's going to, you know, I'm going to go speak at a big, you know, real estate expo in Seattle to get investors that want to buy real estate. I'm going to do that stuff. You guys do this stuff. So that that's how we've been doing that. Who's your book for? Uh, you know, my book is really for mostly entrepreneurs. Um, you know, th this book, it's funny. Um, this book is, it's, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's my life, obviously, uh, being an airline pilot and, and having that 9-11 day, that aha, like my safe, secure job is not safe and secure. Um, and then the trials and tribulations of realizing that, I'm really not qualified to do anything else. Um, so I had to almost reinvent myself 
even though I never lost my job as an airline pilot, I, and I love being an airline pilot, I still am, but I realized that at any moment that could go away. And so I, I had to realize that I've got to have something else, a career, a business that I can control, not something that controls me. So I put it in a different perspective, uh, my life. And so the book is about, you know, I started buying real estate, got our butts kicked. Um, then that turned into creating a management company, kept getting our butts kicked and we just kept getting up. And, you know, when you don't know any better, right, you get punched in the face, you get up, you get punched in the face. That's all you know. And so now you look back and you're like, man, I can't believe we did all that stupid stuff. I can't believe we're still around. At the time, you're just doing what you got to do to survive. And, that, and that's kind of what we did at the time. We were just surviving. Um, and, you know, the book is as is, is much about Pete as it is about me. And just our story of walking through and learning the, the rules. Because, look, you guys know as well as I do, you know, you're asking me questions like I would ask you questions. There is no playbook. There's, there's no rule book that says, hey, here's your business. This is you go. It's, it's not a recipe. It's very dynamic for different industries, different cities, different people. So, you know, again, this is just a, I think this is really just a piece of the puzzle for people that own real estate or own their own companies that say, how did you guys do it? What were your mistakes? And, and kind of walk through that. And that, that's really what the goal was, was just to help people not make the same mistakes that I made or Pete and I made in, in you know, whether it was being into a career, thinking I was safe and secure, buying real estate and not doing the right due diligence and not having the right strategy of the plan or going into a business and all the trials and tribulations that happened with that. Are there a few like pieces of advice you'd give to entrepreneurs going into real estate, whether it's they want extra security outside of their full-time job. So they're looking at property as like an investment to rent or maybe even like a property management entrepreneur building a property management company. Any advice you'd give? Yeah. Uh, definitely. And, and this is advice I wish somebody would have given me and, and they didn't. And, and I, I was very expensive, hard knocks. Um, the first thing I would say, whether you're uh, a business, owning a business or you're an investor, is figure out what the end destination is first. Like have the plan and, and what is the goal? And, you know, especially with investing, right? You know, everybody wants to get involved in investing. They don't want a job. They want passive income. Well, why, why are they getting into this? Why do they want to own real estate? And if they said they want to retire, well, what does that mean? Is that a, you got you to put something tangible, meaning a, a, a number of passive income or an asset value or something on the you know, destination. Like, I want to go to Disneyland. That's where I'm going. Okay, great. Now, the strategy is how are you going to get to Disneyland? Meaning what freeways are you going to take? And then once you're doing that, and that's how you can go ahead and you can start creating the strategy for getting you to Disneyland. Because look, as an investor, what is a good deal for me may not be a good deal for you based on our goals. And same thing with, with owning a business, you know, whether it's a business, well, let me, let me back up. When you own real estate, you own a business. You have income, you have loss, you have taxes, legal, you know, everything that is a business is when you own one rental property. So you have to think of it like a business. And the biggest challenge we all have is as entrepreneurs, we run into the fire without a plan, right? We start a business without a, without policies, procedures, structure. We did. You guys may have. I don't know. But we did that with real estate. We did that with business. We just started, right? Because that's the entrepreneur in us. That's really, look, people don't fail because they don't work hard. I know a lot of entrepreneurs that if they had to work 25 hours in a day, they would do it to survive. And yet they still go out of business and fail. 
I think they fail because they don't create the right structure and they don't have policies, procedures on how to run that business. And a business, again, is something that runs without you. And so I think the biggest thing is, is when you're running a rental property, you're running a, your own company, whatever it is, take the time and create the processes and procedures before you go live. And, and that's the biggest advice that I wish somebody would have given us because, again, it's like building the plane in the air as you're flying it. It's not fun. I, I would add to that and say, and also allow yourself to be embarrassed when you start. Absolutely. Yeah. Be okay. You know, I mean, when I, when I first started speaking, right, we started, we were trying to get realtors to, to give us referrals and I started speaking at realtor events. Um, and then I got certified to teach continuing education. Um, and then I got a couple then I was on a radio show. I, I guarantee you that I sucked when I first started. I was a horrible speaker. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know anything. Now I'm probably, you know, I'm probably pretty decent now because I've, I've spoken on some pretty large stages with some, some amazing people. I've been trained. I took the time to get educated on how to speak um, and how to present and everything like that. But again, you don't know if you don't have a baseline, like you said, if you don't start from sucking, you're definitely not going to get better. Right. And you've got to be okay with, you know, kind of standing out there and, and not being good and taking the criticism and saying, how can I do that better? And, you know, I've heard some people, they say, oh, man, I don't listen to anyone. I'm like, why wouldn't you listen to people? They're giving you advice that is going to help you be better at this. But it's their ego, right? That's normally the challenge is our, our egos get in the way. Well, and if you look at anything that you did five years ago, 10 years ago, whatever it was, I mean, one of my one of my friends just sent me a thing on iTunes about a, a thing that I did, a recording I did I don't know, 10, 12 years ago. I was like, I don't even want to listen to that. It's got to be so bad yeah. to, to do that. So, I mean, I I think that analysis paralysis thing of, of not getting started, I mean, that's what part of this is coming down to from what I'm hearing from you, Steve, is when you're like waiting to begin to think about starting or whatever else, it's like, look, if you if you just have a notebook and you're like, all right, so let's talk about your property. I mean, that's that's what you got. Get out there and go do that. And that's the starting line. Is that is that right? Absolutely. I mean, to me, you know, action is the key. And, and the biggest reason people don't do things is that, like you said, they don't want to look dumb and they just don't want to take action. They want to think about it. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's because they, they don't want to look dumb. And sometimes you got to be okay with looking dumb. And, and, I, and when I say taking action, taking action could be creating the business model. It could be like sitting down and creating the structure and creating, you know, everything that is going to make it work. You know, uh, you had asked about an investor um, for what, what advice I would give them. If, if you guys had someone come into your company and they said, Hey, I don't really know anything about what you guys do. I've never been a CEO. I don't know accounting. I'm actually not even good with people and I've never done this before, but I want to run your company. Would you hire them? The answer is no. But when it comes to your rental property, you are that person and you just hired yourself and you suck at your job, but you are now the one running your company. And if you have five properties at 200,000, you know, you, you have a million dollar business potentially of assets and someone who knows nothing about what they're doing just by default, because they're standing in front of you because they're you, you are now the CEO of your company and you have no idea what you're doing. And how could you expect anything less than disaster? I think this is why a lot of real estate investors are like, this, this can't be truly passive. <laughs> like, <laughs> The, the, yeah. the problems that come like, yeah, you have a great story with, uh, you know, the classy properties you first invested in where you were like, felt like you were bleeding out. 
Yeah. I mean, what would you, so let's say someone maybe through inheritance accidentally, or maybe they actually intentionally go and start investing in these rental properties, but they're looking to do it in a passive way. I'm assuming that they should be looking for property management, but yeah. is there a specific, specific like kind of property manager they should be looking for? Well, again, I, I go back to, I'll, I'll go back to the original. Uh, they got to have a goal, right? So, so before they do it, they, they got to have a goal and they got to create the strategy and they got to understand that part of that goal, you know, look, there is no real estate book or any book creating wealth that I have ever read that say you should do it all yourself. You should be the manager. You should be the maintenance guy and you will be super wealthy. I've never, I don't know if you guys have, I've never read that or seen that, right? The only way it works is by leverage, right? You get a leverage with a loan. You get a leverage with a realtor. It's, it's just a matter of leverage. So understand that, you know, I, we get some owners that say, oh, you know what? I just want to give you the property and I don't want to know anything about it. And I go, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Why would you say that? They're like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to have anything to do with it. I'm like, this is a business. You are the CEO of your business. Why would you let your own business be run into the ground? You don't know me. We just, you saw me online. You don't, you can't trust me. And look, things go wrong. That's life. Why would you do that? That's ignorance. That's how you get ripped off. Trust, but verify. And I tell them, I said, listen, you are the CEO of your company. We are the operating system of your company. If you want passive, then you should get into a, a REIT or a syndication or something like that, that you have no control. Now your returns are less, but now you don't have to be involved in it or a mutual. Mm -hmm. But if you want to get involved in this sandbox of owning real estate, there is responsibility on your part. And it could just be looking at monthly reports from your property management company, but don't be ignorant and just say, I want you to handle it and I don't want to be involved. I'm like, to me, that's just, you know, that that's your life and that's your company. And would you let the CEO of your company say, yeah, I just don't, I don't even pay attention to your company. I just kind of let it run. And whatever <laughs> happens, happens, you know? And, and so that I kind of put it in that perspective and they're like, wow, I never thought about that. I'm like, you know, that it's important to, to put it in the right perspective because that's why so many investors fail is they don't put it into that perspective. Yeah. It makes sense. Is there anything else you would say to, Oh, I'm going into wrap up mode here. Um, cause I, I want time to uh, tell people where to find out more about you, but any last things you'd want to say to any of the either landlords or property management entrepreneurs listening? I think that, you know, the, the, the challenge with entrepreneurs and, and I, and I put a landlord and a, and a business owner in the same box really is it's a very lonely world. It, it really is because there's nobody really to bounce the ideas off of, to say, am I doing this right? Or am I doing this wrong? And as entrepreneurs, it's tough. It is tough. And, you, you know, what I have learned and what Pete and I have learned is it's persistent. It's a matter of just, you know what, you're going to have days where you don't want to get up. You're going to have days that you don't want to deal with stuff. And the reality is, is everybody has those. And it's the ones that get up and keep going that actually succeed. Because, you know, we have a vision of what we think success is. And then there's the reality of what success is. And the reality of success of people that are successful they deal with the same stuff that we do. It's just a different scale or a different challenge, but it's the same stuff. And so my advice is, you know, you've got to keep moving. You've got to keep your feet moving because if you stop, it'll beat you. And if it beats you, there's one thing to beat you and you close your business. There's another thing if it beats you up internally and it, and it defeats you inside. And, you know, for those of people that have had bad mistakes and businesses and, you know, properties that don't work, it's a very lonely feeling when you know that your money is on the line and you made a mistake. And, you know, I tell people, it's just like a bad meal. It'll pass with time. 
and you just got to remember you're not going you're going to go back and eat again eventually you will eat you're going to get back into business again but if you just keep your feet moving and keep being persistent that is what will get you through it and by the time you're done with it you're going to be like it sucked but it wasn't as bad as i thought it was because we always whenever we see a situation we never say like oh this is going to be great i can hardly wait to get this attorney to call me right you never that always we always go towards worst case scenario we never go to best case so we always think, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? And that's what we focus on. And we all know it's normally not as bad as we thought. So, uh, you know, my advice is you just got to keep going. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm no special. I'm no smarter. I'm no better than anybody. The only key is that we took action and we never let something beat us. And we definitely never stopped doing anything. I love it. I'd say your superpower is perseverance. <laughs> perseverance. I, I would say so, yeah. So, Steve, where could um, our listeners learn more about you? Yeah, um, well, I'm uh, I'm pretty much pretty big on social media. Um, they can go to my Facebook, Steve Rosenberg Professional. Um, there, they can go to our Facebook group, uh, Empire Industries. As you said, I actually have a Facebook group. I actually have two Facebook groups. One of them is called the Landlord Survival Group, which is also a podcast show, the Landlord Survival Show. Um, the other Facebook group is actually called Entrepreneur uh, or Sphere of Influence. Um, and I have a podcast show tied to that, um, called the lion's leadership den. And that's more for business owners trying to figure it out. And so we, we have a podcast show, uh, me and Alex Osinenko, um, as well as this Facebook group. And it's just entrepreneurs that are trying to figure out, you know, how do I know if I've got an issue with an employee? What do I do if something's wrong? And it's a place that you can just talk about it. It's not property management specific. It's just business specific. And so they can find me on there on Facebook. Um, my shows are both on iTunes. Uh, if you want to find my book, um, you can do that, Building an Empire. Uh, you can go on Amazon. You can find it on Amazon. Or you can go to my website, steverosenberg.com, and we got a ton of stuff there. And, and if anybody wants to ask me questions, I'm pretty available. I pretty much answer anyone that reaches out to me because there was really no one there to help us um, besides our coaches. Um, so if I can give back, I always try to give back as well. Awesome. Steve, thanks so much for being on the show. All of the uh, resources you just talked about, we're going to put in the show notes as links. Um, I actually just bought the book uh, off Amazon, Building an Empire, Failing Our Way to Millions. And that's going to be in my mailbox on Saturday. Awesome. Love Thank that two-day turnaround from Amazon. So, and you got to love it. <laughs> um, anyway, thanks for being on the show. Um, it's been a pleasure. And for everyone, if you're interested in learning more about Latchel's services and what we do, you can click on the green button in this Crowdcast. If you're not attending the Crowdcast and you're going to watch our podcast later, uh, find us on latchel.com and click schedule a meeting. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date. Hit that subscribe button. Give us some love. Maybe give us a five-star review, too, if you like what you're hearing. And I have an ask for you. I'd like you to go to latchel.com and click the book a demo button to schedule time to talk with us. We want to hear about your business, how you've been, how you're growing, how maintenance is going at your company. Maybe we can work together, maybe not, but you won't know unless you talk to us. So go to latchel.com, click the book a demo button. I'm looking forward to talking to you. I know the rest of our team here is. So go do that as soon as you can. Thanks, everyone. See you back next week.